I would like to direct you to the letter of 3 John. Third John. This is the word of God. The elder unto the well-beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth, beloved I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospereth. For I rejoiced greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee, even as thou walkest in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Beloved, thou doest faithfully whatsoever thou doest to the brethren and to strangers which have borne witness of thy charity before the church, whom if thou bring forward on their journey after a godly sort, thou shalt do well, because that for his name's sake they went forth, taking nothing of the Gentiles. We therefore ought to receive such, that we might be fellow helpers to the truth. I wrote unto the church, but Diotrephes, who loveth to have the preeminence among them, receiveth us not. Wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds which he doeth, prating against us with malicious words, and not content therewith, neither doth he himself receive the brethren, and forbiddeth them that would, and casteth them out of the church. Beloved, follow not that which is evil, but that which is good, He that doeth good is of God, but he that doeth evil hath not seen God. Demetrius hath good report of all men, and of the truth itself. Yea, and we also bear record, and ye know that our record is true. I had many things to write, but I will not with ink and pen write unto thee. But I trust I shall shortly see thee and we shall speak face to face. Peace be to thee. Our friends salute thee. Greet the friends by name. Let's pray. Gracious Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. Father, thank you that you have preserved this letter of 3 John. And Lord, we pray that now your spirit would work among us and in us, Lord, to apply your truth to our hearts. Lord, to cause us to obey your word. And Lord, to cause us to glorify Christ by exhibiting his great work in us. Lord, we pray all of this in his holy name. Amen. Dear friends, the last time we considered the short letter of 2 John a few weeks ago, and this afternoon with the Lord's blessing, we will consider the even shorter letter of 3 John, the shortest book in the New Testament. And like 2 John, 3 John is often overlooked in reading and preaching. 
The one reason for that, or one reason for that, is just because it is so short. It's easy to think, well, it's just 14 verses, a couple of hundred words. Let's just go over it and then move along. It probably doesn't have a lot in here because it doesn't have a lot to do in it. It's a short book. But another reason that people overlook 3 John is because it is a personal letter from John to a brother in Christ named Gaius. And this personal letter assumes a significant amount of knowledge about a situation that we know nothing about or very little about. John and Gaius would have known the situation very well, and we might wonder what we could possibly glean from reading someone's personal mail about a situation we know very little about. And so people have often read through this letter quite quickly and without much thought, without knowing the context or why this little letter found its way into the New Testament. They read it, they check it off because it's on their Bible reading plan. It's in the Bible, we have to read it. But they don't really give it any thought and meditate on it and study it. Now, despite its brevity, 3 John makes a significant contribution to our understanding of what it means to live as as Christians, to live out the truth. In 1 John, John assures his readers that they have eternal life. And if you're familiar with 1 John, you may know that in that letter, the Apostle John lays out basically three tests by which we can compare ourselves. The test of faith, the test of love, and the test of obedience. We measure our lives against those tests, and we can see if we have eternal life. And we can have assurance of our salvation. We see that we believe in Christ, that we love our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we are being obedient to the commands of Christ. In 2 John, John shifts his focus a little bit and reminds us as believers that we are called to persevere in the truth. We must persevere in the truth. We are called to persevere in the truth despite dangerous deceivers that seek to distract us, that want to destroy us, destroy our faith. Now in 3 John, John continues the same theme of truth from 2 John, but now he looks at it from a different angle. And instead of focusing on persevering in the truth, he now focuses on partnering with the truth. To put it succinctly, 3 John is about giving. Giving financially to support the work of ministry. Now when you understand that, and that the book is so short, and that there is, that it's a personal letter about which we know little, it's no wonder that people want to read through this book quickly and move on to Jude and then on to Revelation. Because this letter gets into our personal lives, doesn't it? It gets into our finances. It gets into our money. It gets into our resources. It talks about something very practical in our lives, how we support the ministry of the word, how we support it monetarily, financially. And let's face it, when the church begins to talk about giving money to support ministry, people get uncomfortable. People are often not accustomed to hearing about money in a positive way, in a biblical way. Maybe they're uncomfortable about it because when they hear about it, it seems like the church is all about money. Money is the focus. And maybe they don't understand 
why it is that people give to the church to support the ministry of the word. And so a book like 3 John comes along that focuses on giving, and that can tend to make us a little uncomfortable. During my time with you here at Covenant, I have noticed that this is not a church that makes giving a focal point of our life together as a body. It is addressed from time to time, and it is an aspect of our worship that is not overlooked or neglected or ignored. But it is not something we talk about continuously. It's not something that is presented as an incessant sales pitch that we want you to give and give and give and give until it hurts. Come on, give some more. That's not how giving is presented here. This is the first assembly I've been in, been a part of, that didn't pass the collection plate around at least one time in every service. We're not a church that pressures people to give when their hearts are not moving them by the Spirit of God to give. But I think that sometimes the desire to not make giving a central focus of the church can lead to some misunderstandings about giving. It can lead to some wrong ideas about what giving is and why we give and why it matters that we support the ministry of the Word of God. We could get the idea that maybe the church should never talk about giving, that if we ever talk about giving, that's just manipulative. That's just pressuring people to give. So we should just avoid the subject altogether. Third John is really a timely book for us because it explains a biblical theology of giving. It really helps us to have a full biblical understanding of why we give. And we are covering this letter in God's gracious providence in a time when we are doing relatively well financially. Yes, we are few in number, but we are not suffering shortfalls or burdensome debt And this is a great blessing to us. So this letter is not being preached because we are having some dire need in the church and we have to find some way to motivate you to give. It's not being addressed because we are trying to manipulate you or to try to pressure you to give. It's been amazing to see how God has poured out his blessings on this church in the last few years, both internally and externally. The Lord has provided abundantly for our needs through the generosity of his people. So much so that we have been blessed to support many missionaries and even help other churches in their time of need. And so this message does not come from a place of saying, church, we're slacking in this area and you need to do better. You need to dig deeper. We don't have some big project and there's a need and we're nervous or panicky about it. Back many years ago when I was a United Methodist, I remember every fifth Sunday being a week when the pastor would not preach, partly because he didn't get paid for fifth Sundays, but mostly because we were going to hear a message from a lay preacher about why we have to sacrificially give to the building fund. And it was almost always based on a misuse of Malachi 3.10. Malachi 3.10 reads, Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be meat in mine house, and prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts. If I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing, that there shall not be enough room to receive it. 
If you'll just give the Lord all you should, he will pour out blessings so big you can't hold it all. That's how this was preached. He says, prove me. Put me to the test. That's not why we're looking at 3 John. This book, the reason that we are looking at 3 John is because it comes after 2 John. And that's the beauty of expository preaching. With all due respect to our brother Tom, when you just preach through books of the Bible, you get a full biblical theology about everything the Bible talks about eventually. And that's what's happening in 3 John. It just happens to be the next book after 2 John. And it comes to us not in a time of dire financial need, but in a time when we can look at it and see what we are really doing when we give. Why did we do that? What are the benefits of that? And we can begin to understand the purpose and the motivation and the reason for giving. Notice what John writes in this letter. This is a letter that is about financially supporting faithful ministry. And we see that in a number of places. Verse 5, Beloved, thou doest faithfully whatsoever thou doest to the brethren and to strangers. Gaius has helped the brethren. He has accomplished things for the brethren, especially for strangers. That is, traveling preachers of the word of God, traveling ministers of the gospel who had been sent with letters of recommendation from other churches to minister and strengthen and build up churches in other regions and do missionary work and evangelize unbelievers. He has helped them. Those who were in need of food, those who were in need of lodging, those who were in need of financial support to get where Gaius lived to their next area of ministry, he has been faithful to help them. Who was this Gaius? That name is mentioned five times in the New Testament, but it was a very common name at that time. So we cannot be sure that the Gaius referred to in this letter is the same as any of those other occurrences. In all likelihood, this is not the same Gaius that's mentioned by Luke in the book of Acts and by Paul in Romans and in 1 Corinthians. So it is very likely that all that we know about Gaius, this particular Gaius, is what John tells us in this letter. But we see in verse 5, he acted faithfully and helped the brethren. He provided what they needed. In verse 6, John wants Gaius to bring forward on their journey after a godly sort. That is, he wants Gaius to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. Another way you could put that is he wants Gaius to provide their travel expenses, make sure that they have what they need to get to the next ministry assignment. In verse 8, John says, we therefore ought to receive such. Another way that you could render that is, therefore, we ought to support such men. This indicates financial support. We should give money to help the spread of the gospel. And then in verse 9, we meet Diotrephes. And one of the key problems in his character is that he forbids supporting faithful servants of Christ. He forbids that monetary support to those that are ministering the word of God. And lastly, in verse 12, we meet Demetrius, and we'll talk about him more in a few minutes. Somebody who is in immediate need of financial support due to his ministry of the word. And so 
this is what John is writing about. He is writing about the importance of financially supporting faithful ministry. Now, if we want to do this, if we, if we want to faithfully support the proclamation of truth, John gives us four things in this letter that we must do. Four things that we must apply to our lives if we would be those who faithfully support the ministry of the truth. And the first thing we see in verses 1 through 4, we, we must know the origin of faithful ministry. We must know the origin of faithful support of ministry. Where does it come from? Where does the motivation come from? Where does the motivation to give financially to the ministry of the word come from? What is the origin of that desire? It is interesting that John does not begin the letter by encouraging Gaius to give financially right away. He doesn't start there. He starts by laying the foundation of this. And after an initial greeting in verse 1, in verse 2 he says this, Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospereth. John here notes the spiritual well-being of Gaius, that he is doing well spiritually. That's the emphasis of verse 2. Third John 2 has been a bedrock verse for the Word of Faith movement, the prosperity so-called gospel. Oral Roberts tells the story of how he was seeking a word from the Lord and knew that God would send him a special message from whatever verse he opened the Bible to. And so he happened to open his Bible to 3 John verse 2, and he read that verse, and he claims that God revealed to him that it is his will for all believers to be healthy and rich. That's the will of God based on him just opening his Bible to this text. Completely out of context. He uses this and begins a movement, this prosperity gospel, this health-wealth movement, this word-of-faith movement that teaches that it is God's will that you not get sick and not be poor to be healthy and wealthy. And we here in Broken Arrow and in the Tulsa area are at ground zero of this satanic bomb. Now, we cannot tackle that entire false movement in this message, but suffice it to say that there are enough verses in the New Testament that demonstrate the difficulties of the Christian life and the trials of the Christian life for us to be able to say that it's not always God's will for us to be healthy. It is not always God's will for us to be wealthy. He may do that with some of us according to his will, will, but that is not the mark of true salvation, to be rich in the world's goods. Not only do we have many verses that refute that, but the example of our Lord Jesus. He was so poor during his earthly life that at one point in the Gospels, he said that he didn't even own a pillow. That's poor. And a pillow in the ancient world was just a rock to put your head on. Some of you may be thinking pillows are expensive. You could, you could spend hundreds of dollars on a pillow today. That's not what Jesus was talking about. This wasn't a my pillow or a Tempur-Pedic. He was just saying, I don't even have my own rock to put my head on. That's how poor he was. 
If you look at the apostles, they were regarded as the filth of the world, the offscouring of all things. They were often in poverty and traveling here and there. And of course, the apostles were rich in faith. The fact that they were often poor in this world and were mistreated had nothing to do with their spiritual condition. John is not building a theology of prosperity here. And he's not teaching that God's will is for us to be healthy and wealthy. The point that John is making to Gaius is that he is spiritually healthy, that he is spiritually healthy, that he's spiritually rich. That's the point of this verse. And notice John says, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in good health, even as thy soul prospereth. The word he uses translated wish can also be translated pray. You could render that first part of the sentence, I pray concerning all things for you. John prays that Gaius might be in as good a shape physically and materially as he is spiritually. And the prosperity John prays for is a prospering done to Gaius. In other words, not that Gaius would prosper by his own efforts, but that God would cause him to prosper. John prays for a prosperity in which Gaius is passive. It is not a prosperity activated by Gaius speaking it into existence through positive words or some other such nonsense. Also, it is a prosperity that will be a continual reality. Mayest and be, in our translation, indicate a present active reality. John prays that Gaius will continually be made to prosper and be in health by the Lord. Now, at this point, you might say, why would John pray for this particular individual to be healthy and to have mercy, have money? Because Gaius has a track record. He has a track record of using his health and using his money to support the ministry of the word. He's been a faithful giver to the ministry of the word of God. And when somebody has a proven track record that they use their energy, that they use their financial well-being to support the work of Christ, it is right to pray that God would enable that person to continue to do that. And that's what John is doing here. He's praying that Gaius would have what he needs because he knows Gaius is generous with what he has. I think this verse is so convicting because it presents to us this question. What would happen to you if your brothers and sisters and your family and your leaders started praying that your financial condition would match your spiritual health? Because that is what John is praying for. For Gaius, that his physical and financial health would match his spiritual health. Would you dare offer this prayer? As one commentator I read probingly asked, how many today, even among those who profess the name of Christ, would be willing to have this standard applied to them? Would your physical health get better if it were granted? Or would it get worse? Would your financial situation improve or would you be impoverished? We are naturally focused on the external. We are naturally focused on things that are temporal, like our physical health, our bank accounts, our retirement plans. 
And we can spend a lot of time, a lot of energy, and we can sink a lot of resources into having good physical health or making sure that we're in good financial shape. And in and of itself, there's nothing wrong with that. But do we spend as much, if not more time, ensuring that our spiritual health is strong, that spiritually we are rich toward God, that we are prospering in our relationship with the Lord? You see, Gaius was a man more focused on his spiritual well-being than his material or physical well-being. So focused on growing spiritually that John could pray that this financial, that his financial and physical circumstances would match his spiritual health and riches and know that that would be progress for him. That would, he would be enriched to support the saints and not impoverished. Now, in verses 3 and 4, John goes on to say this. For I rejoiced greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee. Even as thou walkest in the truth, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Some people had come and told John about Gaius, that he was faithful and that he was generous and that he was living a life in accordance with the truth. He was walking in the truth, which, as we saw last time in 2 John, that means that he held to the truth about Christ without wavering. He was persevering. He lived a life that demonstrated love to other believers. He was being obedient to the commands of Christ. Gaius was setting a godly example for the church of somebody who truly loved Christ and truly loved the people of Christ. And John says that he has no greater joy that when he gets a report like this, that there is somebody who truly loves Christ and truly loves Christ's sheep, nothing brings him more joy than that. This really is the greatest joy for any pastor, for any church leader, for any godly parent, anyone who is stewarding the souls of other people, anyone who is shepherding another person, when they know that person is persevering in the truth and walking in the truth, there is no greater joy than that. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. A text that I'm sure is very familiar to to all of us. Hebrews chapter 13. And look at verse 17. The word of God says this. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves. For they watch for your souls as they that must give account. That they may do it with joy and not with grief. For that is unprofitable for you. How do you ensure that your spiritual leaders have joy as they lead you spiritually? It's very simple. You walk in the truth. You stay grounded in the word of God. You have a life that is consistent with what scripture says. You maintain sound faith in Christ and love one another and obey Christ's commands. There is no greater joy than watching that happen among the people of God. And the writer of Hebrews says that if you do this, it will be profitable to you. And if you don't do it, 
it will be unprofitable to you. Why would it be unprofitable for you to bring discouragement to your leaders? Because that would mean you're living contrary to the word of God. And whenever you're living contrary to the word of God, that is not beneficial for you because it's not beneficial for the church. And it brings no joy to those who keep watch over your souls. And so John is overjoyed. He was made exceedingly glad about Gaius's faith and his obedience. And he commends him as this letter begins to remind Gaius what motivates his faithful support of the preaching of, of God's word. It is a genuine love for the truth in the hearts and minds of the saints that moves them to give. It moves them to give in a way to spread the support of the truth through the ministry of the word. You know anyone who has means, who has money, is able to give financially to support ministry. Even if it's a small amount, anyone can give who has some resources to support ministry. But what motivates the believer to give is not guilt. It's not shame. It's not manipulation. It's not the hope that maybe if you give enough, they'll put your name on a plaque somewhere on some wing of the building after you've given a big enough donation. What motivates the genuine Christian to give support to faithful ministry is simply this. He loves the truth. He wants more and more people to hear the truth. He finds no greater joy than seeing others hear the truth, embrace the truth, and live out the truth. What drives him to give is a love for truth. Beloved brothers and sisters, we must examine ourselves to see if this love resides in us. Are we a people who love the truth? Are you made happy in life? Do you have exceeding joy when people come to know the truth? Are you willing to give because you want the truth to be proclaimed? Do you receive joy as that happens? And as you know, you don't have to manipulate people to give when they love the truth. You don't have to have some big fancy campaign to get everybody on board. You just preach the truth, and when the people hear the truth, they want other people to hear the truth. And they want to give to support to make sure that happens. And that is what we have seen here from the Spirit of God. That's the origin of supporting faithful ministry. Now, second, you need to understand the objective of supporting faithful ministry. The objective. And this is very, very clearly stated in verse 8. We therefore ought to receive such that we might be fellow helpers to the truth. That's the objective, to be a fellow helper to the truth. When we faithfully support those who minister the word of God, we become fellow helpers or fellow workers, not with them, notice, but to or with the truth. We partner, as one writer put it, we partner with the truth itself when we give to support the faithful ministry of the Word of God. You know, we saw the opposite of this in Second John, where if you support false teachers, if you acknowledge them as brothers and sisters in Christ, if you welcome them into your home and give them food and lodging and provisions to travel around and spread their false teachings, if you put your stamp of approval on them, you partner with them in their evil works. You become a partaker of their evil deeds. 
And that's a strong warning not to acknowledge false teachers. But here in 3 John, we have the opposite of that. Here's the positive side. It's not just the negative. Here's the positive. Don't support those who speak lies and corrupt truth. But when you support those who speak truth, you become a partaker with them. You become a partner with them. You become a partner, a co-laborer, a fellow helper with them that proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. You know, every Christian is called to participate in the preaching of the gospel. Every Christian is called to be a partner in this. Some are called to participate by going out and doing the preaching and doing and spreading God's word. And there are men that God calls and qualifies and raises up and sends out to speak forth the word of God. And as pastors and church planners and missionaries, and they go and they travel and they give everything in their life to this one task. But you know, that's not most Christians. Most Christians are not called to be pastors and church planners and missionaries. Most Christians are called to do other things, to be police officers, firemen, accountants, doctors, lawyers, mechanics, builders, whatever it might be. So how do you participate in the spread of the gospel if you're not called to be a preacher of the gospel? Well, John says you participate in that. You are called to be a part of that, but you do it through your financial support of those who are proclaiming the truth. And when you support those who are preaching the word, you, in a sense, are joined with them so that your voice is joined to theirs, and it becomes a joint project, a joint effort of proclaiming the word of God. Notice in verse 5, John says, Beloved, thou doest faithfully whatsoever thou doest to the brethren. Now, that word faithfully, it has the idea that you are acting in a way that is consistent with your faith. When you are acting in a way that's consistent with your profession of faith, and when you give support to those who are proclaiming the word of God, you are acting in agreement with what you profess. You are doing what you're doing matches what you say you believe and what you have said you value. Because as believers, we say we believe the word of God. We believe it is sufficient. We believe it is necessary. We believe it is the most important thing. We believe everyone needs to hear it. And then if you say, I'm not going to give anything to support people hearing it, doesn't that act in contradiction to what you say as a Christian? And so when Gaius was supporting those who were out ministering the word of God, he says he was acting in a way that is consistent with his faith. That's what John was saying here. Thou doest faithfully. Our profession of faith leads us to support those who proclaim the word of God. Now, there are some practical reasons we want to understand this objective. First of all, we need to understand this objective because when we are fellow helpers or fellow workers to the truth, we demonstrate love to God. And we see that in verse 6 which have borne witness of thy charity before the church, whom if thou bring forward on their journey after a godly sort, thou shalt do well. Another way you could translate that is, they have testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. Now send them on their journey. John's not talking about sending them packing. 
He means pay for their travel expenses. He means buy their plane ticket. Buy their bus fare. Make sure they have enough money to buy food. Make sure they have enough clothing to get where they're going. Make sure that they have resources they need to get there and to minister the word of God in the next place that they're going to serve God or in the place that they are. And he says that you are to send them after a godly sort. Or you could also render that in a manner worthy of God. What does that mean? It means you send them, as A.T. Robertson quoted, since they are God's representatives, treat them as you would God. What would you give God if he was going on a journey and needed supplies and needed resources for his mission? John is saying here, recognize that when you support the work of the ministry of the word of God, you're not primarily giving to men, but you're giving love to God. Jesus says in John 13, 20, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that receiveth, whomsoever I send receiveth me, and he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. Our Lord said this in the context of the upper room discourse as he was addressing the disciples on the night of his betrayal and his arrest and the day before his crucifixion. In that statement, he makes what one person has called an unbreakable chain between those he sends and God the Father. When you receive those sent by Christ to proclaim the word of God, you are not really just receiving them. You are receiving Christ. And when you receive Christ, you're not just really receiving Christ, you're receiving the Father who sent him. And so there is a unity. There is a unity between God and the men he has raised up to proclaim his word. And so... You support the ministry of the word as an act of love to God himself, recognizing that you are supporting the work of God as you support faithful ministry. And you also want to be a fellow helper to the truth because those who go out to faithfully preach the word of God have, in verse 7, for his name's sake went forth. They've gone out for the sake of the name. They've gone out for his name's sake. Now, Third John is a curious book for a number of reasons. One of them is it's the only book in the New Testament that does not explicitly mention Jesus. It is the only book in the New Testament that does not say Jesus or Christ or Lord. It does mention God, but it does not mention the Son specifically. But here in verse 7, this is where it gets the closest that it gets, as it says, for his name's sake, which would be the name of our Lord Jesus. And the implication here is that those who are faithful in ministry do not go out in ministry to make a name for themselves. They are not in ministry to promote themselves for popularity or for fame or to promote their voice or their name or agenda. Faithful ministers of the gospel understand that the ministry of the word is not about them. And whether they preach to one person or 10,000 people, their desire is the same, to see the name of Jesus Christ exalted and glorified and adored. They're in the ministry because they love Christ. They love his name above all names. And they are content to be forgotten when their race is run 
just as long as the name of Christ is remembered. You should support men such as these. Why? Because they have gone out to glorify the name of Christ. And that is our heart's desire that when we see the name of Jesus Christ magnified, we know that he is being glorified, that it is for his name's sake. We want to see the name of Jesus Christ glorified. And when we give support to those who have gone out just for the simple reason that they want to bring the glory, bring glory to the name of Christ, we want to support that because we want his name to be exalted. Another practical reason that we should be fellow helpers to the truth and understand this objective, this goal, is because God designed that preachers would get their support from those who know the truth and because they'll never be helped by unbelievers. Look at verse 7 again. Because that for his name's sake they went forth taking nothing from the Gentiles. The Gentiles here is John's way of talking, of describing the unbeliever, the person who is outside of Christ. He's not talking about physically, ethnically people who are Gentiles. He's talking about people who are not saved, people who are not in Christ. And those who preach the word of God faithfully expect and accept nothing from the unbelieving world. Those who truly preach the word of God are going to be despised by the world. They're going to be hated by the world. They're going to be considered deceivers and haters of men. Those who are opposed to progress, they are going to be problems. They're going to be like Elijah was to King Ahab. When Ahab saw Elijah and said, Art thou he that troubleth Israel? That's how the preachers of the word of God are in an unbelieving society. They are the troublers of that country in the minds of unbelievers. The preachers of the gospel should never expect the world to support their ministries. And by the way, if the world ever does start supporting the ministry, you need to be greatly concerned. And so John says there is a practical reason you need to be a fellow worker with the truth. You need to understand its objective. If Christians don't support the preaching of the word, no one will. Help is not coming from the government. Help is not coming from Hollywood. It's not coming from the academy. The people that God has raised up to support are the people who believe the gospel, who love Christ. And so if we are not willing to support the ministry of the word, no one will be. And so we must understand this objective. We want to be fellow workers with the truth. And third, if we want to be faithful fellow workers with the truth, we need to overcome the obstacles that come our way. We need to overcome the obstacles to supporting faithful ministry of the word. There are always obstacles to this. And when John wrote this letter to Gaius, there was one significant obstacle to supporting the ministry of the word, and that obstacle had a name, Diotrephes, a wicked man. And we read about him in verses 9 and 10. I wrote unto the church, but Diotrephes, who loveth to have the preeminence among them, receiveth us not. Wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds which he doeth, 
prating against us with malicious words and not content therewith. Neither doth he himself receive the brethren and forbiddeth them that would and casteth them out of the church. This was a wicked man. And he's wicked for a number of reasons. One, he rejects apostolic authority. Did you see that in verse 9? John says, I wrote unto the church. Now this could have been 1 John or 2 John, or perhaps it's a letter that's lost to history. We don't know exactly to what John is referring. But he wrote something to the church, and Diotrephes does not accept what we say. He rejects apostolic writing. He rejects apostolic authority. He's not going to submit to the apostles, but he has taken upon himself the position of authority. He's the revealer of divine mysteries, the interpreter of the truth, and he has set himself up in a clash with the last living apostle. Can you imagine? Now, maybe he knew John's old. His time is done. He's old and irrelevant. I'm what's new. I'm what's really true. I have more energy than he does. And so he takes on the beloved Apostle John and he establishes himself as the authority even over the Word of God. Now, second, notice Diotrephes loveth the preeminence among them. He loves to have first place among them. He likes to put himself first. Very interesting in the original language. This is actually put before his name. So it reads in the original language, the one who loves to be put first among them, Diotrephes. It names him. But the emphasis is on his desire. His desire is to be number one. His desire is to be the most important person in the church. He loves to be called by the official titles, to be thought of as an expert. He loved the accolades and the adoration of the people in the church. He wanted to be the preeminent one. And this is always a mark of a false teacher. They want to be the center of attention. Brothers and sisters, there is only one person who gets to be the preeminent one in the church. His name is Jesus. No one gets to be first among us but him. We understand that that place of preeminence belongs to Christ alone and to no one else. But Diotrephes wanted Christ's position. In a very real sense, he was an antichrist seeking to supplant Christ. And he did that by rejecting the very apostle that Christ had commissioned. Now, not only did he reject apostolic authority and love the preeminence, but notice in verse 10, he slandered faithful servants of Christ. John says, wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds, which he doeth. That means I will bring up his deeds, which he did and is still doing. And then he names those deeds prating against us with malicious words. Now, prating here, it translates a word that means disparaging, slandering, speaking against, speaking evil of. It has the idea of accusing idly and falsely. 
It was used in polemic debate to to denounce the silliness or stupidity of of an argument. Diotrephes slanders faithful servants of Christ. He was talking wicked nonsense against them. He was making baseless charges against John and his co-workers. He is slandering them by accusing them of wicked deeds that were a total fabrication. And anyone who knew John, anyone who knew his apostleship, anyone who knew the men that were around him serving Christ, they would have all known that these accusations were total nonsense. Completely false. And John says he does this with malicious words. Literally evil words. Wicked words. Logois Ponyrois. Now you probably know that logos means word. Jesus is the logos. Logois is the plural form, words. Ponyros, evil one. Deliver us from evil, the evil one. Ponyrois, a plural form. With wicked words, John says. Evil words, words intended to do harm, to bring false, slanderous allegations. Words with evil, malicious intent. John leaves no doubt here. Diotrephes was not just a misguided brother who was mistaken. It's not a misunderstanding. It's not a comedy of errors. Diotrephes is using speech with the intent of harming John and his co-workers through the use of slanderous lies. No wonder in this. This has long been the tactic of the evil one and his children against God's people. Finally, notice that Diotrephes eliminates rivals to his power in verse 10. And not content therewith, neither doth he himself receive the brethren, and forbiddeth them that would, and casteth them out of the church. So he doesn't receive the brethren. That is, he doesn't receive the servants of Christ that come from those other churches and from John. He eliminates all potential threats to his supremacy by rejecting, by rejecting anyone else who could teach or preach or minister. And he excommunicates or kicks out of the church anyone in the church who is favorable toward those people. In other words, rather than cultivating trust from people that are faithfully preaching the word of God and living out a godly example of obedience to the word of God, which that's how a godly leader builds trust in people, you faithfully teach the word of God and live your life out in front of them so that they can see you obey what you preach. Instead of doing that, he cultivated a a following through intimidation and fear, threatening to kick out anybody kick anyone out of the church who did not bow to his supremacy and never allowing in anyone who might challenge him. Brothers and sisters, this is why it is important. This is one reason why a plurality of elders is so important to the church. Because it ensures that no man, one man gets preeminence in the church because if you have several men who lead the church as a team, you don't have one man who gets to decide everything. Really, you don't have one man who gets to decide anything. 
And that protects the elders. It protects the body of Christ from men like Diotrephes who would seek to seize power for themselves. Because once somebody comes in and tries to raise himself up, to raise himself up as the source of truth and the preeminent one in the church, the other elders are there to see that and to rebuke that and to call for repentance. We see Diotrephes rejecting this because he has unilaterally removed people from the church. No one person in the church has the authority to kick someone else out of the church. That is not the prerogative of one man. That is something that is done through the mechanism that God has given in Matthew 18, in most cases, and in Titus 3, and in some special cases in 1 Corinthians 5. Through either through the plurality of elders or through the congregation. But Diotrephes had seized this power illegitimately, and he was a significant obstacle to supporting the ministry of the word. Because if you even expressed a desire to do so, unless it was his ministry, you would be kicked out of the church. Now you might say, who cares if I get kicked out of the church? I'll just go to the church down the street. Well, there was no church down the street back then. If you got kicked out of the church, that was the only church in town. And this was a society where honor and shame were powerful tools and created a powerful mindset. Getting kicked out of the church was a shameful thing. You would be rejected by everyone you knew. You would be a social outcast, a pariah. Well, that's fine. I'll just go start my own church. No, no, that's not going to happen. You would be isolated and alone. This was a very real threat to these people. This was not just some minor obstacle. This was a major problem. Now, today, we don't have the same circumstances, do we? I mean, nobody is going to kick you out of the church because you support faithful ministry of the word. But there are still challenges we face in giving and supporting faithful ministry. Think about the present environment where fuel prices are very high. The cost of eating at a restaurant has doubled over the last couple of years. Grocery prices are skyrocketing. Interest rates are rising. Things are just getting worse and worse economically. That's an obstacle to giving because that can create worry in us, can it? That can create worry over your well-being and anxiety and prevents you from giving. I can't give to this because what if gas goes to $6 a gallon? What if it goes to $10 a gallon? What if a combo at Chick-fil-A goes from being $10 to $20 or $30? I can't afford to give because I have to make sure that I can protect myself against possible economic problems. And then anxiety and fear can cripple giving. There's also an obstacle and greed, isn't there? Greed. We might want to have a new car, a new house, a bigger house, a nicer house, nicer clothes, nicer shoes, a bigger TV, new furniture, whatever it might be. We want to live more comfortably. And before I'm really going to partner with the truth, I'm going to make sure that I have all those financial things met first. One writer observed about this, greed never runs out of things 
to be had first before you can start giving. But this is an obstacle that we must face. There is no minimum amount to give given to us in the New Testament. It doesn't say give 10%. You are at liberty to give however much God puts on your heart to give in the New Testament. But let's say you use 10% as a baseline, 10% of your total income. If you thought about that, that amount of money and you thought, I could put that toward a house or toward furniture or toward a vacation. That's a significant amount of money for most people. It's not small. You could really improve your life if instead of giving it to the church, you just kept it for yourself. We must face these obstacles. We must recognize that our hearts are greedy, our hearts are worried, and the priority must not be things of this world, but to be fellow helpers of the truth. We have to overcome the obstacles, whether it's a menace like Diotrephes, or it's just the sinfulness that still remains in our own hearts. We should all be willing to say with King David, neither will I offer burnt offerings unto the Lord my God of that which doth cost me nothing. Your giving should impact your lifestyle. If you are giving to the church and it has no effect on how you live, then in essence, it costs you nothing. And this is the point. There's going to be obstacles because giving is sacrificial. Giving is costly. Giving is something you should notice in your life. Nobody else may notice it. And everyone's financial circumstances are different, so the amount that they're going to be able to give will be different, but you should notice it. There should be things in your life that you say, I don't have that because I gave that to partner with the ministry of the Word of God. We must overcome the obstacles that come to generosity. And now finally, we must embrace the opportunities to support faithful ministry. If we want to be fellow helpers to the truth, we must take the opportunities God gives us. And the only command is in verse 11, Beloved, follow not that which is evil, but that which is good. He that doeth good is of God, but he that doeth evil hath not seen God. In other words, don't be like Diotrephes, who is evil and completely self-centered, but imitate what is good. Imitate what is generous. Remember what Jesus said? There is none good but one, that is God. Imitate what is good. Imitate God. Give like God. And then he has an opportunity to do this in verse 12. Demetrius hath good report of all men and of the truth itself. Yea, and we also bear record, and ye know that our record is true. Now, now who was Demetrius and why does he show up here? Well, Demetrius was a traveling preacher of the word of God who was a co-worker with John. John writes a letter and he hands it to Demetrius and says, go and deliver this to Gaius. Demetrius may not have known what the letter said. He gets to Gaius and knocks on the door 
John has sent a letter to you. I suggest that you read it while I'm here. Gaius opens the letter and reads it. Oh, and by the way, I'm Demetrius. We haven't met before. Gaius gets to verse 12. What's John saying? He's saying, here's Demetrius. Here's a letter of recommendation, of commendation for him. Receive him, support him, give him food. Give him lodging, give him financial resources. He needs to go where I send him next. And I think you can feel Gaius's blood pressure rising as he gets to verse 12. Because now he is face to face with a decision. Will he embrace the opportunity to be a fellow worker with the truth? Or will he cave to the threats of Diotrephes out of fear? And here's a man standing at his front door that's going to make his decision obvious for everyone to see. Conflict now is unavoidable for Gaius, isn't it? Because if he accepts Demetrius, he's going to get kicked out of the church by Diotrephes. But if he rejects Demetrius, he rejects being a fellow helper to the truth and rejects apostolic authority. Put yourself in Gaius' shoes for a moment and imagine you're standing there. And this isn't one of those situations where, you know, oh, well, I'll go pray about it and I'll tell you later. No. (laughs) He's standing right there in his presence. You don't have time to pray about it and make this decision. You're face to face with it now. One writer said that because of this, 3 John is the most stressful letter in the, third, in the New Testament. That's a serious situation, a serious conflict. To end this letter, John encourages Gaius to do the right thing in verses 13 and 14. He says, in effect, by the way, I'm, I'm coming to visit. And if this wasn't stressful enough, John the Apostle is coming to, to visit and he's going to make a big scene in the church with Diotrephes, and this whole thing is going to happen. But he says at the end of verse 14, or if you're following along in a different translation, it will be in verse 15. Same information, it's just divided up differently. Remember, verse divisions were added much later and are not inspired. At the end of verse 14 in the authorized version, John ends the letter like this. He knows This is going to be a problem for guys. He knows controversy is going to happen. Conflict in the church over this. What does he tell him? Peace be to thee. You know, those greetings at the end of a letter are never an accident. He doesn't say peace because he didn't know what to say. It's not as if he had to choose between peace and grace and mercy And he just picks one out of a hat. No, he knows Gaius. He he knows that he's throwing him in the middle of a storm here. But if you follow the truth, peace will be with you. You're going to have conflict. You're going to have to battle as you stand for the truth. If you stand for truth in the midst of that battle, you will have peace. It can be messy standing for the truth. Thankfully, John reminds Gaius and us that we do not stand alone. He writes, our friends salute thee. He wants him to greet the friends by name. Now, the word translated salute 
is the same word translated greet. There are other people who are faithful to the truth, and, and, the, and the diatrophies don't win in the end. Well, what happened? Where, what did he do? We may not find out until we get to glory. Did Gaius receive Demetrius and risk the anger of the illegitimate usurper Diotrephes? Did John come and publicly confront Diotrephes and set things right in the church? Or did Gaius choose to imitate what is evil and give in to the baseless slander of Diotrephes? Well, we don't know. History doesn't tell us what followed this letter. But I think we can surmise that Gaius made the right decision. Because if he had made the wrong decision, I don't think he would have saved this letter for other people to read. And this letter has been preserved. Gaius took the message to heart. It seems as though he continued to, to support those who minister the word of God, even when others slandered them and had refused to submit to God's word themselves. And Gaius saved this letter because he must have thought to himself, surely I'm not the only one, the only person who will ever have this problem in the church. I'm not the only person who will need to be encouraged to be a fellow helper to the truth. And God in his providence has saved this letter for us even to this day to encourage us to be fellow helpers with the truth. Now that requires us to do several things. We need to know the origin of that support. We need to understand the objective in supporting the ministry of the word. We must overcome the obstacles that come our way. And we must embrace the opportunities that God gives us to partner with his truth. And when we think about this, brothers and sisters, when we think about giving in this way, doesn't it revolutionize the way that we're giving in worship? See, we're not just talking about making a donation to a cause. We're not just writing a check to pay an electric bill or, or to buy a missionary a plane ticket or something like that. We're becoming fellow workers with the truth. We're partnering with what God is doing in the world. We are living out our faith. We're partnering in ministry with those whom God has raised up to proclaim his word. And we do that in accordance with our profession of faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Blessed God and Father, Lord, in this very short letter, Lord, there is much for us to consider. There is much for us, Lord, to meditate upon, much for us to examine ourselves. Lord, why do we give to you? Why do we give back what you have given us? Lord, what is the objective of it? Lord, are we embracing all the opportunities that you give us to give? Lord, please apply your word to your people. Work by your Holy Spirit in us. Cause us to obey this word. Lord, cause us to give in support of the ministry of, of your truth. Lord, we long to see more brothers and sisters, to see people saved to the ends of the earth. Father, we pray 
Lord, that you will continue to build us up and strengthen us. Lord, cause us to mature in our faith in Jesus Christ and to mature in our giving and to be faithful to you, Lord. Father, we pray all of this in Christ's holy name. Amen.